TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. And welcome to Overnight America. I gotta say, I'm disappointed after the Cardinals game tonight. Shouldn't have ended like this. It's not like this. Not to Washington. Not to Washington. Ah. All right, so we're going to get another chance at it. I think tomorrow's going to be a hard-fought game with some aces on the mound. So that'll be an interesting one to set up for tomorrow. Welcome to the show. It's a late start for Overnight America, past 11 o'clock. So we're going to be live up until 2. And I have a couple of guests scheduled for the next few hours, mostly because, you know, when we start to uh, book certain guests, sometimes there's really good guests available. So I recorded them earlier because they naturally don't want to stay up till 11. And if they're on the East Coast, it's past midnight. What do they want to do? Uh, You know, they might like me, but they might not like me enough to stay up past midnight to do a live interview on the radio program. Now, some of them would have to go one to two in the morning, whatever it is, depending on when the time changes hit. But Rich Rubino is going to join us, author of American Politics on the Rocks in the next segment. In the few segments, we have him on every Monday. Looking forward to that. In the next hour at midnight. Dave Parker, a Major League Baseball legend. He's someone that has all kinds of awards to his names. I think he was in seven All-Star games. He won the MVP in 78. Right off the bat, I asked him, hey, did you bat against Bob Gibson? He said, yeah. I mean, Bob was towards the end of his life, you know, meaning towards the end of his playing career, I should say. But, um, yeah, he batted against Bob. What he, That's kind of cool. He was also a batting coach. Uh, Dave Parker was. 1998 for the Cardinals. Now, think about all the excitement that goes around the big race with McGuire and Sosa. But he has some problems of his own. Uh, he wrote a book called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. We're going to talk about his playing days, him battling drug issues, and now battling Parkinson's. What a interesting life Dave Parker has lived. He's in the Reds Hall of Fame, and he's... Had some great memories of the Cardinals in his book, which we'll talk about later, too. And then in the one o'clock hour, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. She has a book coming up in about a month called Whole Brain Living, the anatomy of choice and the four characters that drive our life. Brain researcher. She knows a lot about brains, lots of brains. Uh, If I were to ask her to analyze my brain, she would uh, probably have to decline because she would say something uh, along the lines of there is no telling 
what is in that wild and crazy brain of yours. I may not come back sane. So Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor in her upcoming book about the brain. We'll talk to her later in the show, too. So big, big show planned for you. I don't know if you caught this morning, Megan Lynch, a reporter here at KMOX in the newsroom. She's got a brand new series called When Will It End? Talking about the pandemic and the coronavirus. A lot of different angles to cover on that. And her series is going to air every morning, Monday through Friday this week. And she had part one of her series this morning. I'm going to air it here tonight on Overnight America, too. I figured this is a good opportunity for us, for those that are up late but not up early in the morning. It's such a great, wonderful piece of work. Every time Megan Lynch puts these together, she does a fantastic job and wins a million awards for them. So she's going to uh, join us. I should say her series will be. We're going to play her part of it towards the end of this hour, too. And Rich Rabino, right after the break. Okay, I think I set that all up. If you want to text into the show or communicate, you can always message me on Facebook, Ryan Recker Radio. 314-436-7900. We're probably not going to take a lot of calls tonight just for the sake that we have all these interviews lined up. But if you want to text in, I'll be keeping an eye on the texting line. This is Overnight America KMOX. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks, politidashgeek.com. Rich Rubino, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Ryan. So, by the way, you were on with Brad Young last week. How did that go? Uh, it was... Uh... It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. No, it was. It, was, it, was, it, it went very well. He did. A, he did a. Uh, he did a. He did a very good job. He was very well informed. Yes, he's great. I wanted to talk to you about a few different things that we're seeing. And court packing is a, a big topic. There's a commission that the president put together to look into the idea of the Supreme Court and some things of how the courts work, one of which is packing the court, which is adding additional Supreme Court members, which concerns an awful lot of people. And the White House and the press secretary, Jen Psaki, are saying that's just one of many things they're looking into. But it's still even the idea of it scares a lot of different people. Now, I wanted to ask you about court packing because there is a history behind it. It's been brought up a few times, but there was a major push about, what, 80 years ago or so? Yeah, it was actually back in 1937. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened, so Franklin Roosevelt was elected first term 1932, and then he was re-elected re in 1936, literally won all but two states that year. Um, so it was a landslide, so he thought that essentially he could consolidate his power. And we noticed was his New Deal, which was essentially his de democratic uh, social programs. A lot of them were being, being ruled null and void by the United States Supreme Court at the time, as there are today. There are basically, it goes back, by the way, there's, just for some history here, there's nothing in the Constitution that stipulates how many justices how many Supreme Court justices there actually are. Um, it's actually, that actually goes back to, it's actually be, the reason there are nine is simply because of a Judiciary Act from 1869. But theoretically, uh, the Congress has plenary authority. They could change it. They could bring it down to seven if they want. They could bring it down to 13. Prior to 1869, it was actually 10. So there's nothing that says it has to be nine. So what was happening with Roosevelt at the time was there was um, essentially, there were, three, there were about three justices that usually, usually would vote to uphold New Deal legislation and then there were three justices, conservative justices, who usually who usually ruled them impermissible. There usually would be three that were kind of um, on the, they were kind of the centrists, I guess. Charles Evans Hughes, um, the one who would run for president in 1916, former governor of New York, um, Supreme Court justice was usually one of those kind of centrists. But what Roosevelt was thinking, he thought that he had a mandate, and his basic plan was that for every justice that reaches 70, 70 years of age in six months. Um, he would be allowed to he would be allowed to nominate a new Supreme Court justice to serve consummately with that other justice. So 
um, it would so it would there would be a limit of 15 justices. So you couldn't just keep doing it up till you get you know nine justices and then you get it to 18. But he thought that that his his excuse, I guess you could say at the time, everyone knew it was you know it was thinly veiled partisanship to get his legislation through, was that the Supreme Court was so backlogged that they needed more justices. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes didn't agree with that. He basically said that if you want to get your legislation passed, you just have to make it more constitutionally permissible. So essentially what happened was they did not have much um, – the, the Democrats could not get it through, the United, even though they had an overwhelming majority in the Senate and the, and the House, certainly. Um, there were some many Southern Democrats, and almost all Republicans were opposed to it. Eventually, they had to, Roosevelt had to send it back to the committee, and it never went anywhere. And this is one of the reasons why Franklin Roosevelt's second term is usually considered a failure. In part, first of all, he tried two things in 1937. One thing he tried was balancing the budget. He'd run for president in 1932 on economic issues. He'd actually run to the right of President Herbert Hoover. John Nance Garner, his vice presidential running mate, said that Hoover, because he was willing to um, he was willing to support some domestic spending, was going down the quote-unquote road to socialism. So it, Roosevelt's first his first two first term in office um, basically basically spent and spent and spent, and um, now he wanted to kind of truncate that spending. And a lot of people believe that that's why the, the, the Great Depression essentially continued up until the 1940s because Roosevelt Roosevelt acted in terms of fiscal fiscal austerity too soon, and he also used that mandate to try. He spent a lot of time in that first term, specifically in 1937. Trying to get um, some of those, trying to get the Supreme Court packing plan, and got absolutely nothing out of it. But that being said, it's interesting because in 1937 there were some decisions, for example, in the minimum wage, where the justices actually agreed with him. So there was actually kind of, so it actually kind of did work out in terms of getting some of his legislation being being agreed to be constitutionally permissible. But of course, just the time that he spent working on that um, was not stuff he could have been spent doing things that were more productive and he could have actually gotten passed. Mm. Is there a conflict of interest? Let's say someone in the, the administration decides to try to add Supreme Court justices, and let's say someone <laughs> challenges it. And how does the Supreme Court then go and rule on something that would impact them? It's almost like that wouldn't be allowed in any other circumstance. Well, <laughs> they would certainly be allowed to do that. Um, it is there is certainly a conflict of interest. I guess you could also say, for that matter, that you know, would it be a conflict of interest for you know a president to nominate a Supreme Court justice? Then that Supreme Court justice is deciding on legislation that said president uh, has actually proposed, mm-hmm. and obviously there's going to be a conflict because you think that the Supreme Court justice, whether it's true or not. Um, there's the perceived impropriety, I guess, that the Supreme Court justice would be grateful for that president, or perhaps there'd be some people that would think, conspiracy-minded people, that think that there's some sort of a deal that the president said, you know, I'll put you on the Supreme Court, but in return, you have to essentially be very sympathetic to uh, the legislation. But that is interesting, though, because um, the Supreme Court on that, that specific, you know, the constitutionality of that legislation of acting the court would actually be ruling for that, but mm-hmm. I don't think they would really have any issues because I said there's really nothing in the Constitution that stipulates, um, you know, how it's kind of like the Electoral College, you know, um, how the states decide to award their electoral votes um, is really open-ended, and they have plenary authority. In this case, the uh, the pre- if the president and the, if the president and the United States Congress agreed to have 15 justices rather than nine, certainly constitutionally, I think the Supreme Court would have to rule that being permissible. You know whose name has been popping up lately is John Boehner, and I haven't thought about him in a long time. So (laughs) maybe you can uh, take a trip down memory lane about John Boehner's rise to power. And he was in Ohio, right? He was. He was in South... uh 
He was in southeast Ohio. He was right around kind of – he represented the area right around some of the suburbs, right around the Cincinnati-Kentucky border. Interesting figure. He got elected first in 1991, and he was elected to the United States House of Representatives. He was actually considered one of the rebels. He was member, became a member of the House Opportunity Society, a very conservative group. They tried to take on the leadership um, on the Republican Party. They were at the time considered kind of the renegades of the Republican Party. So that's kind of where John Boehner got his start. Um, but then the Republican Party kind of moved um, a little, moved further to the right and became more or less anti-establishment, and Boehner came to be seen as kind of that scarlet S as part of the establishment of the Republican Party. And in 2001 and 2002, he worked with President George W. Bush, with Congressman George Miller, a very liberal Democrat from California, um, Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, and they got past the No Child Left Behind Act, mm -hmm. which at the time uh, many on the left thought that it was thought, thought that it was thought that it was too um, thought that it was actually too re too restrictive, and they they said they thought that um, they didn't like the idea for their for example of requiring testing. And on the right hand side, many Republicans thought it was an intrusion, an encroachment, if you will, into federal education system, into the federal education system. Mike Pence. Junior congressman from Indiana was very much opposed to it. Many libertarians were opposed to it. Dick Cheney, at least personally, according to Boehner, was very much opposed to it. So when he did that, he kind of became more or less part of the establishment, if you will. He later becomes he becomes speaker he he becomes speaker of the house. And when he becomes speaker he when he becomes speaker of the house um, after the 2010 elections, when the Republicans took control the, took control of the, of the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, he sees that many members of the Tea Party Caucus are very much opposed to essentially what he do, which was essentially his brand of leadership. Some of them didn't they didn't vote for him. Some of them voted for an alternative. Um, and Boehner really kind of kind of lets it rip, if you will, on the Tea Party and the Tea Party movement in the Republican Party. He basically thinks that their job that that he talks about Jim Jordan, actually an Ohio colleague, which is really fascinating. He talks about how Jim Jordan, for example, likes to essentially. Um, likes to kind of you know rabble rouse, but doesn't actually want to accomplish anything. He says the same thing about Ted Cruz. He talks about Ted Cruz, you know, gets elected in 2012, and then as soon as he gets in there, he you know tries to shut down the government. Then he runs for president. He talks about Michelle Bachman, interestingly, and he says this is a fascinating story. So Michelle Bachman, very junior congresswoman from Minnesota, comes into his office and wants to be on the House Ways and Means Committee. Now, for the lame, in the House Ways and Means Committee is probably one of the two or three most powerful almost omnipotent committees in the United States House of Representatives. And he thought it was very supercilious, very arrogant that a, that a congressman, that, 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 that junior, would actually come to his office and ask for a seat on the um, – and, and ask for him to give her that seat. Now, first of all, he doesn't actually have that power because there's a little known committee called the Steering Committee made up of Republican members. John Boehner can certainly recommend – as the Speaker of the House, I want this person on this committee, but he does not have plenary authority, does not have the sole power to do that. But he said, no, I can't, I don't favor that because you're a junior member. And he, eventually he got him on, he did try to, he did convince her um, to get, he wanted to, in order to get foreign policy chops, knowing she wanted to run for president in the future, got her on the Intelligence Committee and actually complimented her for what he did on that committee. But why is this so significant? It's because what Michelle Bachman said to him, very interesting here, she said, okay, well, if, you know, if you're not going to do this, I'm gonna, I can go to Rush Limbaugh, I can go to Sean Handy, I can go to Mark Levin, meaning essentially she can kind of circumvent the system. And if she goes to all these conservative intelligentsia, conservative radio talk show hosts, there will be a movement to get her on the committee, and that's the way that she would do it, to kind of go, go, go over the, the heads of you know, John Boehner himself. And Boehner really said that she was, he was right because the conservative intelligentsia have so much power 
that essentially he does not he he's kind of almost subservient to it. It's not like the days of Sam Rayburn, you know, when Sam Rayburn could tell the liberal members of the House of Representatives, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to work with the Eisenhower administration. You kind of have to, you know, back off, and they have to actually back off. So Boehner talked about how you know he didn't really necessarily have uh, that power, and he kind of I think play, he think that basically the argument is that I was here first. I was a conservative who tried to get legislation, shepherd legislation through Congress. Now there are members that essentially get there, and as soon as they get there, they spend all their time on television rabble-rousing, and they don't actually try to accomplish something. So as a result, uh, Donald Trump has already called him you know, a Republican name only, a rhino. He's becoming kind of persona non grata with some conservative circles. So it's really fascinating how he's kind of you know, come back in the way that he's really gone with a vengeance against the uh, new conservatism of the Republican Party. So for whatever reason, one of the only things I remember about John Boehner is the smoking— the <laughs> in the tan. the tan. Yeah, the smoking <laughs> in the tan. Did they ever allow smoking on the House or Senate floor back in the day? You know, they did. And if you actually look at, if you go to C-SPAN archives, and look at, like, if you look at old hearings from like the 1980s when they're actually talking about legislation to uh, ban smoking in airlines that have done this, you can actually see the members of the committee actually smoking <laughs> while interviewing the witnesses. So, I mean, just like anywhere else, you know, there was Mike Wallace who used to do all of his interviews in the 50s and the 60s, and he'd be smoking while doing the interviews. So it was just such a, it just permeated our system. People didn't really think much of it, but obviously if somebody did that today, um, you know, they would be kicked out. They would be kicked out immediately. John Boehner would probably would have kicked him out, but Boehner was known for very much for spending a lot of time right outside of the doorways of the uh, House of Representatives because he is very much uh, a smoker and a drinker. Right, and even he, through the KMOX photograph archives, you can look at some of the previous hosts conducting interviews or on the air, and you can either see the ashtray or them actively holding a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. And it was like that for a long time. I mean, it was just the norm and for life in general. I mean, there was even a time where you would see pregnant women smoking and there would be nothing or no one thinking twice about it. Oh, it was fa- fascinating. And folks like, um, you know, you go back to um, the early 80s, for example, 1981, when President Ronald Reagan wanted to cut back on tobacco uh, tobacco subsidies. You had Jesse Helms, probably the most conservative member of the United States Senate, talking about, he used to say that when you do not call these um, subsidies, he sold this to a group of tobacco farmers, and he was somebody who advocated for tobacco subsidies. They call them, quote-unquote, market regulators. He was an advocate for it. Al Gore, you know, starred the fact that he worked in tobacco farms. He ran for president in 1988. He was in North Carolina saying, you know, I've grown it, you know, I've... um, you know, I've grown it. I've sold it. He was showing. He was very much showing off of the fact that he was um, that he was an advocate of tobacco, of tobacco farms. But it was something that it was something that. Well, he would go back to Richard Nixon back in 1972. He supported 1968 and 62. He supported, you know, essentially um, 90 percent price supports. And it was a time when Earl Butts, who was the agriculture secretary, had made a statement saying that he opposed it. And this was when Nixon, the vice president, was running for president in 1960, actually. And Nixon that day gave a speech talking about how he favored it. And later, Butts had to kind of backtrack a little bit and said, well, I kind of, you know, I kind of favor it. But it was very much establishment, and it was very politically astute to actually advocate for tobacco and to advocate for tobacco subsidies. And obviously today, if a congressman was advocating for tobacco subsidies, calling them market regulators, they would be seen as somewhat of a rogue, I think, or a renegade. Rich Rubino, polita-geek.com. You can find him online in his book, American Politics on the Rocks. We'll continue with him right after the break on Overnight America KMOX. 
And welcome back to Overnight America, plivot-geek.com, in American Politics on the Rocks. That's where you can find his book, and he's got another one coming out soon, Rich Rubino. Again, thanks for joining us on this Monday. How's that coming along, by the way? Uh, Slowly but surely. It's coming along. It it, it will definitely be out by the summer, but obviously it's tying up some loose ends. It's going to be probably about 450 pages, so I've been working on it for a a long, arduous period of time That's great. Well, I wanted to ask you this, and I was kind of curious because just recently Donald Trump said he's going to come out and help certain people when it comes to their midterm races. So uh, yep. the the election that's coming up next year. And I'm curious, who do you think uh, an endorsement from Donald Trump would help or hurt inside of the Republican Party? Uh, I was assuming his popularity in the Republican Party, it would help most Republicans in the primaries, if not necessarily help them in the general election. One of them that would certainly help is John Thune, the whip, uh, probably when Mitch McConnell retires, the person that, assuming he stays in the United States Senate, would become the majority leader or minority leader, respectively. Uh, he was very critical of John Thune because John Thune had criticized his views in the insurrection, and uh, Trump had basically called him, um, and also for Trump's um, Trump's accusations that the election was essentially stolen from him, Thune criticized him, and then Trump at the time, when he had a tw- Twitter account, said that he was Mitch's boy, um, so he's somebody that John Thune, I think, certainly needs that, endor- needs that endorsement. So if there's no, and he actually said Trump at the time, by the way, potentially there should be a primary challenger, um, potentially Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, but I don't think she's going to do that. I think she'd rather stay as governor and potentially be a vice presidential running mate uh, for somebody. She'd probably run for re-election in 2022 and then potentially be on the horizon in 2024. 20, uh, so that's somebody who absolutely would need um, the endor- would need the endorsement than other folks like certainly who voted for the impeachment those ten um, Fred Upton in Michigan is one who would certainly would help him in the in the primary but then once it gets to the general election um, that would really be that potentially would have deleterious effects on him it would help with the conservative base keeping them to, keeping them from um, from you know voting libertarian or staying home but it could certainly because he's in a very much of a swing district it could certainly hurt him in the general election. Upton's, by the way, the only member of the United States Congress in American history who voted for who's voted for the impeachment of two presidents. He voted for the impeachment of Bill Clinton back in 1998, and he voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And Colin Peterson, and a Democrat from Minnesota, and Peter King, a Republican from New York, are the only members of the House of Representatives to vote against two impeachments. Mm-hmm. They voted against the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998, and against Donald Trump's first impeachment. So that's the two great uh, trivia questions for you. That is good. Is that in your book? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's <laughs> good. Fred Upton, he's the only person in American history who's voted for the impeachment of two presidents. Wow. Well, let's, let's talk about that impeachment, because the second impeachment of Donald Trump came after the election. It was kind of a mute point, considering that he was heading out of the office anyway, and there was a lot of debate of if that even should have happened or if it could have happened, considering that there wasn't really a reason to remove him from office if he was out of office. But you look at the political aspect of an impeachment. You can go back to the impeachment of Bill Clinton, and a lot of times you mentioned that the Republicans made a mistake, as in they realized that they would have put themselves in a worse position by impeaching Bill Clinton. It made a, it made it uh, you know maybe on the surface it would look like this is a good thing. It shows that there's power to your party, but in the end, if you're just counting the seats, it was a bad mistake. And it made me wonder too about the second impeachment of Donald Trump holding off until after the election to do that because maybe the Democrats learned that lesson and they realized that if they would have done it before the election, they could have very well have lost more seats. 
Well, yeah. It, well, it's a little bit different, though, with Donald Trump, because in Bill Clinton's, in Donald Trump's case, he never reached the high watermark of 50 percent job approval rating. He was a lot more polarizing than Bill Clinton was. Um, in Donald Trump's case, there was actually a small majority of the country that actually had favored impeachment and conviction at one time. So I don't think it necessarily would have hurt them. Now, here's what happened with Bill Clinton. So in Bill Clinton back in 1998, during that impeachment hearing, his job approval rating was, about, was in the mid-60s to 70%. So essentially, it was not in the interest of the Republican Party to impeach a popular president. And during the 1998 midterm elections, Bill Clinton was able to campaign across the country for Democrats. And Democrats essentially, you know, whether it was Caramelzy Braun in Illinois, whether it was Chuck Schumer in New York, Blanche Lambert Lincoln in Arkansas, they all invited him to campaign for him. Uh, Buddy McKay in Florida, who was running for, gov- who was running for governor, um, to succeed Lawton Childs, they all wanted him to campaign for, for, him, for them in the general election because he was so popular. So the Republican Party in that midterm election, um, basically, uh, they actually lost about five seats. And this was the first time a president's party has lost seats in a sixth year of a presidency since James Monroe back in 1822. The sixth year of a presidency is historically catastrophic for the party in power. They had just reelected the guy. Um, and then they really get sick of the person, so they land up voting for some members of the other party. So it was, I think, it was basically a message to the Republican Party that we don't want Bill Clinton, we don't want Bill Clinton impeached. We believe what he did was wrong, but it's not to constitute the level of impeachment. And then after that, after the nineteen, after the nineteen ninety eight election, um, in which it was almost a referendum on impeachment, if you will. Uh, they, 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 the House representatives did vote to impeach him, even though they obviously knowing the United States Senate would vote against conviction. So then it went to the United States Senate, and the United States Senate voted against conviction. But in two, by 2000, Bill Clinton was very popular, and he actually left with a 66% job approval rating. So politically, it certainly did not help him. And I think that's something that John Boehner says he kind of regrets. It was really Tom DeLay, who was the House Minority Whip uh, from Sugar Land, Texas, he was really the advocate, and he tried to convince the, the Republican leadership that he really had to go forward uh, with this impeachment, um, even though it certainly hurt them uh, politically. And you know, by the way, in that during that night, during some of these elections, there were candidates who had um, who had said nice things about the prosecutor, Kenneth Starr, and then it became a referendum on them. And interestingly, one of those people, James Rogan, who was an impeachment manager for a very swing district in California, actually lost in 2000. And the flagship issue was the fact that he had voted for the impeachment and advocated for it in the member of the Judiciary Committee. And do you know who defeated him? Mm. Adam Schiff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Adam Schiff defeated him, and then he basically running by saying that Bill Clinton shouldn't have been impeachment and impe- should not have been impeached, Schiff. and we need to get back to the issues. And then Schiff, in another political world, becomes chairman of the Judiciary Committee and leads the movement for Donald Trump's first impeachment. So no, very, um, very ironic. Isn't that true? You know, it's hard to when you said Bill Clinton in 2000, you forget that he was still the president when we flipped over to 2000. It doesn't seem right in the timeline of history. <laughs> Where has the time gone? We're 21 years removed from the year 2000 and Bill Clinton was in office then. That's something else to me. <laughs> that is amazing. And remember the whole Y2K issue. People were wondering what was going to happen with all those binary ones and zeros and not very much. Yeah, no, we got lucky, but they were really looking at the worst. They said power plants would shut down because all the computers controlling them it was a big mess but hey i think just like anyone else was sitting and waiting i don't know did you were you a prepper did you go back at that time and say oh i gotta i gotta stock everything away just in case the world ends 
No, <laughs> that was more or less just interest. I didn't think anything was going to happen. I just figured that the computer people would have it, um, would, would, would have it under control. I, thought, I found it more of an amusement than anything else, but I do remember John Kasich. People remember he ran for president in 2016, but he actually had an ephemeral presidential candidacy in 2000, and his, um, his uh, T-shirt said Y2K. <laughs> I thought it was very creative. I th- you know, it makes me want to go back and look for Y2K memorabilia. I'm sure there's people selling uh, <laughs> I Survived uh, Y2K t-shirts or something along those lines. So, by the way, if people want to... that was prior to social media. I was just going to say that's prior to social media, so you can't really, um, you know, where everyone would be talking about it. So I think it's just kind of a peripheral issue for most people. But if it was uh, happening today, and everyone's talking about it on social media, I think it would really rise to the level of um, people really being panicked over it. Yeah, you know, there's some people that believe we live in this matrix type of world where yes, we're not actually yes. alive, it's all virtual, but we're meant to believe it is alive. So I wonder if that computer we're being simulated on has a Y2K bug. We're in some serious trouble. <laughs> Maybe there's, yeah, like there's some celestial superintendents deciding all of our thoughts. But if they're deciding all of our thoughts and there's somebody up there actually making, you know, saying we're going to think this, then theoretically, then I'm saying what they're saying, what they're saying anyway. So it um, becomes very um, kind of self-fulfilling. Uh, if you will, but there are people that think this is all kind of like a big computer game, and there are people just kind of, you know, moving us around and saying, "We're gonna, who's going to think this? Who's going to think that? Who's going to think that?" And of course, there's Salafism, which is probably the scariest belief, which is essentially belief that essentially when you close your eyes, everybody leaves, and they're only here for you. So that's oh. um, very narcissistic uh, belief, and I'm sure there are a lot of um, people that drive uh, Mercedes, um, a lot of people that probably drive Mercedes, and you know, are on their cell phones all day long, not paying attention to people in the crosswalks. I think they're probably Salafists. I have never heard that viewpoint before. That is a first for me, so I may have to look that up. And the problem is when you look one up on YouTube, next thing you know, that's all YouTube is going to recommend, those type of videos from here on out. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, then you get, and then you get into that into that, weave, that, uh, that web, and there's really no way to find a solution, so it's probably best not to. Yeah. So, by the way, if people wanted to look you up online, social media, <laughs> places like that, where can they look? Yep, you just go to Facebook and type in Rich, last name Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O. Or go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, P-O-L, or www.polita-geek.com. Pretty easy to find you on social media. It works out pretty well. And Indeed. I cannot wait to learn more, and I, I keep asking you about your book, and it's always fun to learn about the progress of it and everything that goes into it. I always uh, enjoy our time here on Mondays. Rich Rubino, thank you again for coming on to Overnight America. Thanks so much for having me on, Ryan. And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. This is Overnight America, KMOX. Welcome back to Overnight America. Rich is so good at what he does, and I'm glad that every Monday we get to hang out with him. He puts a great historical context onto things, and I will be posting a link to that from the podcast on Ryan Recker Radio on Facebook. So Megan Lynch was on last week, and she was discussing her latest series that she's been working on out of the KMOX newsroom. It's called When Will It End? And every morning on Total Information AM, she has a new segment to air looking at a different aspect of the pandemic and the coronavirus, us fighting it. But where will it end? When will it end? And what will it look like in the future? Still questions that a lot of people are asking. And that's really at the heart of this series. So uh, since I know a lot of people are not up in the morning for Total Information AM, myself included, working the late nights make it a little bit difficult to do that, I asked, hey, is it okay if we replay those segments at night? And they said, absolutely. So let's do it. Here's the first installment of Megan Lynch's new series. Conquering COVID. Now the latest on KMOX. 
COVID has taken a tremendous toll. The last year has brought enormous loss and sacrifice. We are weary and anxious to get beyond the pandemic. This week, KMOX News is searching for answers to the question so many of us have been asking, when will it end? One by one, vehicles are directed into parking spots by National Guardsmen. Inside a massive hall, each person is screened multiple times, then sent to one of dozens of numbered tables where a masked nurse waits to administer the COVID vaccine. These mass vaccinations may bring us closer to a better reality than we've been living for more than a year. When will someone officially declare that the pandemic is over? I don't know if there's going to be a simple answer to that. Dr. Alex Garza, Chief Community Health Officer at SSM Health and the Incident Commander for the St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force. I was thinking about this in preparation for this interview, and and I was uh, thinking along the lines of uh, sort of a military campaign. And I, and I don't think that there's going to be any, like, you know, grand signing on the deck of the USS Missouri or anything like that. Instead, Garza tells KMOX it will be a slow end with cases continuing. And at this point, it's hard to say what metric will be used. He anticipates federal agencies will at least tell us as we enter a different phase medically. Even with vaccines, Garza is very cautious about loosening mitigations too soon and suffering a setback. And I liken this to when I was deployed overseas in Iraq. And and we used to always tell ourselves, the soldiers, that is, that the most dangerous month is the month before you deploy home. And that's because you can get distracted and you start thinking about what's on the other side and then you lose focus. He does see a day when there will be improvement. I think we'll be sufficiently towards the end of the pandemic by the end of this summer, beginning of the fall. Magic July 4th, you know, is that gonna be when we can grow out in our backyard with our friends that have been vaccinated? And I think, you know, it's it's certainly a realistic light at the end of the tunnel. Dr. Timothy Wimkin, associate professor at St. Louis University School of Medicine with the Department of Internal Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases, Allergy and Immunology. He's referring to the Biden administration prediction based on vaccine rollout in the United States. Wimkin says while the COVID vaccines that have been developed are amazing, they're not a miracle. It was never really a situation where we were going to end the virus. Wimkin reminds the goal was to eliminate the bad outcomes and deaths. And we're going to live with this virus probably for the rest of humanity. Wimkin says what we've learned this past year fighting COVID-19 could be a game changer. I do a lot of influenza research to watch what happened with influenza when we started the, the lockdowns last year. You know, flu disappeared faster than it had ever disappeared before in the history of influenza surveillance. This year in the United States, there was no flu season. Generally, we see several hundred pediatric deaths due to flu every year. There's been one this year. Wimkin stresses many of the measures that have changed our lives so much, such as social distancing and masking, could knock out a score of respiratory viruses that overwhelm health care every winter. There are signs that people are only willing to hold out so long before they want back what they had before the coronavirus outbreak. The social end of the pandemic could come before the actual medical end. Dr. Alex Garza. We're already starting to see that with certain states declaring ends to mask mandates and opening up restaurants and bars well ahead of what the CDC recommends. As time goes on and more and more people receive the vaccine and cases drop and hospitalizations drop, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure to loosen up a lot of the a lot of the mitigation strategies. Is there the will to maintain some of those precautions? In our next report, Maria Kina looks at whether masks could outlast the worst of the pandemic. Megan Lynch, KMOX News.
Very good. All right. What a strong start to this. Megan Lynch doing her thing. It's always a fun thing when uh, here on Overnight America, we get to air some of the fine work that you would hear normally during the day. But now you get a chance to hear it if you're not up early like me. See, I'm like you. I don't always get up early. (laughs) This late night stuff, particularly when the Cardinals are playing late and there's a late start and I'm on till two o'clock. I can't really be expected to be listening to total information AM. I mean, I guess I could rewind, but I'm a busy guy. So we uh, get to air that here, too. So I know you're probably in that. This is the thing here in radio. We understand that you're not going to listen 24 seven because it's not humanly possible. You have to sleep at some time. We know that you listen to the times you can. And that's why I always value the time we get here tonight on KMOX every single uh, weeknight on Overnight America. So what we're going to do is take a break. We'll take a look at your news, weather coming up, too. And next hour, Dave Parker, he's a Major League Baseball legend. Man, the guy's got so many different records. And he's got a new book. It's a memoir called Cobra, which was his nickname. A Life of Baseball in Brotherhood. He talks about his time playing with Cincinnati and many other teams. He talks about issues battling drugs and Parkinson's now. His life has turned to uh, that. And if you don't know much about Dave Parker, or maybe you just remember some of his playing time in the 70s and 80s, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation that is coming up after the break. Don't go anywhere. You can find me on Facebook. Make sure you like the page, Ryan Wrecker Radio. It takes you just a second to do that, and we can hate social media together. This is Overnight America, KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love. Hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 